This is The Guardian. Today, as Russian tanks roll in, Kiev prepares itself for war. When tens of thousands of Russian troops moved into place on the border with Ukraine in November last year, it was clear the pressure was building. And our concern is that Russia may make the serious mistake of attempting to rehash what it undertook back in 2014, what it amassed forces along the border. Kremlin is, became much more you know, aggressive, and that is why we, we are worried about what, what can come next. The Kremlin wanted guarantees that its neighbour, the second largest country in Europe, wouldn't be allowed to join NATO, guarantees that NATO wasn't prepared to give. Still, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, insisted that he wasn't planning to start a war. Do we want war? Of course we don't. That is exactly why we put forward proposals to open negotiations. Now, Putin has sent troops into Donetsk and Luhansk, two regions of eastern Ukraine that are controlled by Russian-backed separatists. I think it will go down in the history books as a turning point in post-war history. In France, Germany, the UK, the US and beyond, leaders have been quick to condemn their Russian counterpart in the strongest terms. It is precisely because the stakes are so high that Putin's venture in Ukraine must fail. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, can anything or anyone stop Putin's advance on Ukraine? Sean Walker, you've been in Ukraine for several weeks now reporting. And when we spoke to you on the show just a week ago, things seem relatively calm. But the situation's changed now, hasn't it? I've been in Ukraine for three weeks now, a little bit longer. And I think during the time that I've been here, the sort of curve of my feelings of is this going to be all out war or is actually nothing going to happen has gone up and down probably about three times a day. It's been really hard to predict. It's been very hard to read the messages coming out of the Kremlin. It's been very, very clear all along that Vladimir Putin wanted to kind of give the impression that he was willing to invade Ukraine, that he was putting all these troops on the border, that they were making all of these demands of the West. But it was really unclear whether he was actually willing to go through with that. Tensions over the Ukraine crisis are at a boiling point. Today in eastern Ukraine, there were more than 40 ceasefire violations reported. Then in the last few days, starting really on Friday evening, we've seen an escalation that looked very much like it was moving according to a pre-written script. First of all, this escalation of violence across that contact line in East Ukraine, which seemed to be coming from the pro-Russian side, but the Russians were blaming the Ukrainians. 
Можно утверждать, что украинская агрессия против народных республик начнется в ближайшее время. And then having provoked this violence, they then started talking about the danger of this imminent Ukrainian attack, which for all intents and purposes seems to have been completely invented. They're apparently arriving by the thousands. Women, children and the elderly have been ordered to leave their homes in Donetsk and Luhansk. They were evacuating the whole civilian population of women and children from these two so-called people's republics in eastern Ukraine and evacuating them to Russia. Then they said we're going to need to apply to Moscow for support, for recognition and for military help. Well, according to the Russian military, five people have been killed uh, as they allegedly attempted to cross the border into Russia. Of course, this is something the Ukrainian military has just now denied, saying that it is fake news. And then, of course, on Monday, lo and behold, there is this meeting of the Security Council where all of these things that really seem to have been happening according to a Kremlin script are discussed as if they are these terrible, aggressive actions by Ukraine and its Western NATO backers. This incredibly theatrical staged meeting where person after person got up and made these impassioned speeches and basically everybody agreed with Putin that what was happening was terrible and Russia should recognize the republics. When this finally finished, Vladimir Putin said, we will make a decision today. And then it cut off. Уважаемые граждане России, дорогие друзья. And then just a few hours after that Security Council meeting, Putin gave an address that was broadcast on state television with the upshot that Russia was indeed going to recognize these two separatist republics as independent. Говорить придется обстоятельно и подробно. Вопрос очень серьезный. I think it's also really important to look at the tone of Vladimir Putin's address. He was angrily going on this long, rambling rant that it was clear he'd written himself all about Ukrainian history, how it was a fake state, it was a puppet state, it was a colony run by the US. Putin claims the West's attempt to use Ukraine as a pawn to attack Russia. It really did sound like a declaration of war. This seemed like a pretty ominous signal of where things are going. President Putin has ordered Russian forces into two areas of Ukraine controlled by Moscow-backed rebels in a significant escalation of the Ukraine crisis. Now, part of Putin's justification for invading Ukraine has been to say that there were a series of attacks by the Ukrainian army in this part of the country in the east. You've been in Luhansk, and a few days ago, you went to see the sites of some of these incidents. What did you see? What seemed to be really going on? As part of this attempt to show the world that they were not the ones behind the escalation, 
the Ukrainians decided to fly uh, a group of journalists down to a town uh, right on the front line where on Thursday a kindergarten had been shelled. The place where the kids were going to have their gym class, luckily none of the kids was inside that room. A group of about 10 of us got onto these two aging Ukrainian military helicopters and we flew for about an hour, hugging quite close to the line of control, flying very, very low. It was traditionally an area of heavy industry, massively built up during the Soviet period and kind of fell into decay in in the 90s and early 2000s. So you see these huge, uh, rusting, decaying old factories, some of them still working, some of them not. Uh, You see the big slag heaps from the coal mines, some of them still working, some of them not. Usually at this time of year, everything would be carpeted in snow, but it's an unseasonably warm February, so everything was sort of brownish, melting snow, mud. And we landed in a field outside this town. We were driven into this town, which is called Stanitsa Luhanska. We went to see this kindergarten. It was all a little bit sort of for the camera, but it was interesting just to see the way that the Ukrainians were trying really hard to show that this was not them, that they did not want escalation. For all of the news reports and telegram channels and photographs that supposedly were showing that the Ukrainians were planning for this big offensive, which we've been seeing in the Russian media over the last few days, they really wanted to, to show us that that was nonsense. Patrick Winter, you're The Guardian's diplomatic editor. There are reports coming out now that Russian tanks have gone into Ukraine. How significant is that? Even now, we don't know precisely how far the Russian forces are going to go into Ukraine. They could just stay within the two separatist republics. And so in a way, they would be formalizing what's happened already, which is that there are informal Russian forces there and Russian-backed forces. But the issue is whether they are going to go further. And certainly the British point of view, and it has actually been proven right so far, is that there will be a full-scale invasion. And certainly if you listen and read the full text of this long, rambling, but fascinating speech given by Vladimir Putin, it's clear that he sees Ukraine not just as a uh, bogus nation, he sees it as a security threat to Russia and it needs to be dealt with. Hours after his decree, reports from Donetsk said convoys of tanks had entered the main city. Ukrainian forces have claimed that they are a different proposition to what was facing Russia in 2014 and that they will fight effectively. And we'll see very early on whether that's true or not. I mean, privately, a lot of people in the Ministry of Defence don't see the Ukrainians really being able to put on a, a long, successful, open opposition to a military attack. It will be then come down to what happens in the cities. 
how have the leaders of Ukraine been responding? Uh, well, they've been trying to press the West to do more more quickly. I was in Munich at the weekend and the, the Prime Minister gave a really impassioned speech, Zelensky, to the Munich Security Conference, where he really upbraided the West and said, you need to impose sanctions now. And he doubted whether the sanctions would ever be imposed. And he said, we need more military help than we're getting now. What did Zelensky say on Monday night? He was very much insisting that Ukraine could defend its territory, that Russia had broken international law, that this is what he'd warned and that uh, something which he keeps saying, you know, Ukraine is not scared, it will fight. It was a very kind of rallying speech. I know that his popularity has waned since he was elected, and it, it seems slightly kind of extraordinary that we have a former comedian running a, a country in such a tragic moment. Uh, but there we are. I think he's a very impressive figure and there's a interesting polling showing that actually support for in Ukraine for Ukraine joining NATO has ballooned in the last two to three months. Um, so there is a rallying to the flag, as you would expect. Bearing in mind that for weeks, if not months, he's been saying to world leaders, we need more support, we need your backing. I mean, is it realistic of him to now be making that statement, we're strong, we'll fight this? Well, he is getting further military aid as we speak. And I think if you listened also to Boris Johnson's speech in Munich, it was clear that he was going to uh, argue, and he is starting to argue more openly, that if the Ukrainian government has toppled, they must, the West must still fund and arm a resistance. And if Russia chooses to use violence against an innocent and peaceful population in Ukraine... So I think he's aware that there is a, a determination in the West to make sure that Putin doesn't succeed. The phrase that Johnson's used many times is he must, Putin must fail and be seen to fail. That it is in our collective interest that Russia should ultimately fail and be seen to fail. And so thinking about how world leaders have responded since Monday night's announcement by Putin, Boris Johnson put out a really strong statement condemning Putin for making this decision, didn't he? Well, Johnson's response was very, very prompt and vigorous, as he has been throughout the whole of this crisis. I mean, he's, he's certainly on the sort of leading edge of it. I mean, he said that um, this was... Uh, a breach of international law. It destroyed uh, diplomatic attempts to get um, an understanding about what was going to happen inside Ukraine. And he said um, there would have to be severe consequences. And he called for a um, sort of dawn meeting of COBRA, which is the emergency committee, to decide what sanctions would be imposed upon Russia. The House should be in no doubt that the deployment of these forces in sovereign Ukrainian territory amounts to a renewed invasion of that country. I have to say that the sanctions that were announced in the Commons on Tuesday were relatively mild. Today, the UK is sanctioning the following five Russian banks. Rossiya, IS Bank, Gen General Bank. There was five banks and three quite well-known 
acolytes of Putin were sanctioned, but all three of those that have been sanctioned by Britain today have already been on a US sanctions list for four years. So I don't think he was breaking massive new ground. In his defence, he says he's got more coming and that he wants to hold back until there's a, or if there is a full-scale invasion. And he's talking about depriving uh, Russian companies of any access to the London capital markets. So there are big things he still has ahead. You know, the big bazooka is still available. But what do you know? I thought was pretty tepid. Innerhalb der Europäischen Union haben wir ein erstes Set an Sanktionen miteinander besprochen und werden sie noch im Laufe des Tages gemeinsam beschließen. But there was a significant announcement on Tuesday. Olaf Scholz, who's a very kind of cautious German Chancellor, who chooses his words with great care, did finally announce that there was going to be a suspension of the certification of this big gas pipeline from Russia into Germany called Nord Stream 2. Um, it's a new pipeline, so it doesn't actually, and there are many other pipelines that already exist, but it was a big moment for Schulz because he's been very resistant to doing this. And that's the German Chancellor. In the wider EU, what's been the word there? Are there any EU sanctions? There will be EU sanctions quite substantial by the European Union. You've got to bear in mind that to get a sanctions package through the European Union, all 27 states have to agree to it. After condemning President Vladimir Putin for violating international law, the European Union is working on a package of sanctions, including limiting Russia's access to its capital and financial markets. Again, going back to Munich, one of the things everyone was continually saying was that Putin had not divided NATO or the Transatlantic Alliance, he'd solidified it. It was the opposite of what he'd intended to do. And in a, in a sense, that's all well and good rhetorically, but they actually seem to be delivering the goods in terms of a, a substantial sanctions package. Coming up, why foreign leaders couldn't stop Putin. Patrick, you speak to security experts and to diplomats all the time, and I'm wondering what they think. You know, do they think that the international response to this should have been stronger? You know, as we've said, the warning signs that Putin was planning this were there last year. It's a very good question. One of the problems has been, just to take the UK... The assumption in the UK, apart from the fact that it's been deeply distracted by Brexit, COVID and Partygate, etc., the assumption in the UK has been that the future lies in the Indo-Pacific. This tilt to the Indo-Pacific, which is that you know, this is the growth area for all countries and for the UK looking for new markets, the Indo-Pacific represented the place to be. And the subtext also was that we'd really need to stand up to, to China. And sort of Putin was sort of Russia was not sidelined or forgotten, but it was not given the prominence that it has been in the past. So everyone felt Putin was parked. You know, he was a troublemaker. He can cause trouble through Africa. He can cause trouble in Syria. And his regime was deeply unpleasant. But it wasn't an ultimately a threat to the kind of balance of power in Europe. So finally, I mean, is this a diplomatic failure? I think any diplomat would say if a war breaks out, it's a failure. 
their reason for being is to prevent war um, and to find any avenue possible to do so. So the, the danger is that this is now just becoming a habit. I mean, he's done this in Georgia in 2008. He did part of it in Ukraine in 2014. He put uh, Russian forces into Syria. He uses Russian mercenaries right across Africa. He uses them for leverage in Libya and in Mali. And he, his main goal is disruption to undermine the West. And he's got a resentment about what happened to the Soviet Union after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And he's determined to roll back time. Patrick, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Patrick Winter and before him, Sean Walker. I'm really grateful to both of them for making time to speak to us in what has been an unpredictable time for reporting this story. They'll keep you up to date at theguardian.com. Today's episode was produced by Sammy Kent and Cletia Sala and sound designed by Axel Cucutier. The executive producers are Maithili Rao and Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.